Welcome to Sex, Body and Soul. I'm Kate Roberts, founder of The Body Agency. And on this show, we talk about the marvel that is our bodies, what they can do and what they need to thrive. Ladies out there, our time is now. Let's get to it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to season four of the Sex, Body and Soul podcast. And who better to be our first guest of the season but the very talented and beautiful Deborah Messing. Now, you probably know Deborah for playing Grace Adler in Will and Grace and also from movies such as The Starter Wife and my personal favorite, Along Came Polly. But I know her as a humanitarian, an activist, and also as a friend. And she has joined the Body Agency Collective Board. We have recently gone to Rwanda and this is the start of a two-part show where we really will delve into her activism, what it has been like touring the world, meeting with people who are in need, and being an activist. So this is all about Deborah Messing, the activist, and I welcome you back to the season. Hello, my love. Welcome to the show. Thank you, sweetheart. It's so good to see you, although it's only been a week. (laughs) (laughs) Any time is too much. Oh, I know. I know. I've been dying to get you on the show since we started the podcast. And, you know, you are one of these people that came into my life and changed it for the better. You put some trust in me and we have now had a number of adventures together. Mm -hmm. And that's really what I want to talk about today is your life as an activist, changing the world some of the things you've seen, some of the experiences that you've had. And I really want to just educate the world on the world we live in, what's really going on, Mm -hmm. and how you go about making a difference. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've known each other for more than 15 years now, Mm -hmm. and a lot has happened over that time. But for those people who have lived under a rock, Just tell us quickly about your day job. My day job is I am an actor. Mm -hmm. I'm an actor. I am a sometimes producer. I'm a mother and I'm a New Yorker. (laughs) (laughs) So how did that begin? I know you went to acting school. Yeah. I mean, I started singing and dancing apparently when I was three. And I was in all kinds of dancing school, different classes, never stopped singing, had a whole plan of being a triple threat and doing Broadway musicals for the rest of my life. And then I went to college and I studied acting in London my junior year abroad. I got a little more serious about the acting part of it. And then I realized that I wasn't good enough to be a triple threat. And I auditioned for NYU Masters of Fine Arts program, which is a three-year program. 15 of us went through it together. And then I was thrust out into the world and just started working. And I have been incredibly, incredibly lucky ever since. I loved school. I feel like I am a perpetual student which I think makes activism particularly interesting for me. But I'm, you know, I still feel like I'm, I'm learning about 
the craft of acting all the time. I'm blessed. You're a storyteller. You really are. And I know it comes from the heart and you're so diverse, theater, TV, movies, you've just done the whole thing. So what happened? Why did you suddenly wake up one day and say, I want to have some impact beyond your, your acting? I think the real spark happened when I was in graduate school. I had a games teacher named Paul Walker, and he was HIV positive when I met him. And over the three years, I saw him decline. And it was the first time I had seen AIDS. I was scared. I loved this teacher. And by, I think it was six months after I graduated, he died at 41. Was this in the 80s? This was 93. Oh, wow. So we already had a lot. We of... already, yes. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, apparently he tested positive in 81. Mm-hmm. And so we were at the hospital the night before he passed. And there were probably a hundred of his students just lined up to say goodbye to him. And I just remember walking in and he had a tube in his head and it was draining blood and there was a bucket on the floor. Wow. And I just remember just, I couldn't believe it. And he was incubated, so he couldn't speak, but his eyes were incredibly alive and focused. And I just felt like he doesn't want to go. He knows what's happening. He's, he knows he's going and he, he is fully, fully here. And the next day he was gone. And when I say he was beloved, I mean, there was a memorial service, 500 actors from around the world flew in to just be at the memorial. I mean, he, he touched so many people's lives. And I just remember feeling completely changed by it. I was struck by the injustice of it and the cruelty of it. And I just said to myself, I want to do whatever I can Mm -hmm. to make sure that this doesn't happen to people needlessly. And, you know, we need to learn more and we need to find a cure. Obviously it was after just when I graduated. So I was poor. I mean, on unemployment poor. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for several years I did what I could, which was donate $10 to Amfar or $20 to God's Love We Deliver, which delivers food in New York City to sick people. And that was just my way of of just being a part of the solution. And then I got a very, very popular television show and I started making a living and I started getting a platform. I was being recognized around the world now. And I realized that there was an opportunity to use my platform for good. And I wanted to do that. And I knew I wanted it to be around HIV. I was driving in Los Angeles on Sunset Boulevard and I looked up and I remember seeing a huge billboard sign with a shoe ad for Aldo. And it was, hear no evil, speak no evil, see no evil. And it was three just mega pop stars. And the whole thing was about stigma, the stigma of having HIV. And I just remember it stopped me in my tracks. 
because I just thought, oh my God, whoever thought of this is a genius <laughs> to use the most popular pop musicians in the world to say, you have to change your thinking around people who have HIV. It just, it was really incredible. And it just, it was the arrow, you know, that told me this way. And I was like, I have to find out who did that. And I found out that it was a person named Kate Roberts. Well, that's a coincidence. Yes. <laughs> you worked at the Population Services International, a global health organization. And I thought, I need to find her. I need to tell her that I want to be of service. Mm -hmm. And then just so happened that there was this charity dinner party thrown by mm -hmm. Cartier in New York mm -hmm. City and all these fancy people. And I sat down at a long, long table and I looked across and there was Kate Roberts. Mm -hmm. And I nearly, I think I was apoplectic. I, I just remember running up to you and being like, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. You're, you're, you don't know. You don't understand. No. And I was like, no, you don't know. You I, don't know. I was like, you don't understand. I want to work with you. If you think that I could help in any way, I'm here. And I just thought this woman is going to run for the door. <laughs> no. Well, let me, let me interject that because... I don't know. I just believe in serendipity. I believe in karma. I believe in people come into your life at the right time for the right reasons. Mm -hmm. And that day when I was getting ready for the Cartier event, where Ashley Judd, who at the time was our global ambassador for Youth AIDS, which was the program that was behind those Aldo ads, which were phenomenal, by the way. I mean, the campaign raised $5 million by selling dog tags, but we had 40, as you said, of the A-list celebrities in the world with duct tape over their face. Yep. It was actually shot by Peter Lindbergh, who sadly has passed away. Oh, yeah, I don't know whether my, you know that. I did not know yeah. that. Yeah, it was shot by Peter Lindbergh. And that's the reason we got all those yeah. A-listers because they're like, yeah, sure, I will be in an ad shot by Peter Lindbergh. Yes. But that day of the Cartier Mansion, I was getting ready in my hotel room. So I was watching a, a mini series that had come on and there you were. And I thought to myself, wow, what a presence. I wonder if she has any interest at all in doing this. And it was it was a fleeting thought because you also reminded me of my best friend, Alexandra, and you look like identical. And of course, I love her dearly. And so therefore, I loved you dearly. And there you appear at the <laughs> Cartier Mansion. And you're like, no, no, I'm a fan. I'm like, no, 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 I'm a fan. And <gasps> it just went that way. And at that moment, I never thought that we would get to where we are today. But however, you just blew the doors off the room with your enthusiasm and just pure will to have an impact. So thank you. Oh my gosh. Well, you changed my life. You know, I, I tell people all the time that the work that I have the privilege of doing with you is, is my soul work. You know, mm -hmm. I feel like my whole life has led me toward this work and has been building toward this work. You know, but the thing is, is, but for you being the person, I don't know that I would have gone this deep because you are so pushy. <laughs> Sorry. And you are so positive. Mm. 
I just remember it was like sitting for the first time in a meeting about, you know, how can I get involved thinking that I was going to be asked to show up to some charity gala. And you said, you want to go to Zimbabwe? Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, that's a big jump <laughs> for mm-hmm. 12 days. Oh, wow. And you're going to go into the field and you're going to witness everything. And then you're going to do interviews and then you're going to go and you're going to testify on the Hill. In, yeah. And I just, I couldn't speak. And then I was like, yes. Yeah. You know what, Deborah? I remember that day so clearly. That was a long time ago, but we were sitting in a conference room in Los Angeles. And I remember putting a PowerPoint on and one slide after the other. And at a certain point, I'm like, okay, this is ridiculous. And I remember throwing my hands down on the table and looking at you saying, listen, do you want to go to Zimbabwe? Because I just knew that that would open the world to you. I just knew that you could not go and not learn something and not want to come back and do something. And I had been, as you know, working with a lot of celebrities over the years. And I'd really learned actually myself how to work in a way that it's not sort of white savior. You know, you see some horrible things that celebrities have done in the past. And I just didn't want it to be that way. And I knew that you were so genuine about wanting to have impact. And I remember saying to you, if you're willing to learn and listen and just take our advice, you can have an amazing impact. And you said, I will, I will, I promise I will do that. And you did. And look what happened. So. Tell me your first impression. So we get, first of all, we get, <laughs> I remember seeing you at the airport. I think we were flying British Airways and I met you in London and then we got on a plane and then we landed in the country. What were your first impressions? This first trip that you did, how did you prepare for it? And then what did you think when you got there? I remember having to go down to Washington, D.C. to be prepped by a bunch of you about mm-hmm you know, all the programs and what I was going to be seeing. And so it felt very consequential to me Mm -hmm. and very, very complex. And so packing, of course, a lot of the stress was just, how does one pack for this? How do you turn up? Yeah. What's appropriate Mm -hmm. in these circles? You know, I know I'm going to be going into villages where people don't have running water So obviously I'm going to dress differently there than if I'm meeting the head of agriculture in the government. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that was, that was stressful. And I believe we landed like very late at night. And I remember being in the car and just looking out the window and just feeling like I am out of my depth. I am in a foreign world. Deborah, that took enormous trust on your behalf. Like, thank you for... Thank you for just going with the flow because for me, it's so normal to just pack a bag, go to these countries, do the work. Um, But you, had you ever been to Africa before? Was this your first trip to Africa? That's a good question. Yeah, I don't think you had. Had you been to South Africa? I'm trying to think. I, I went on safari to South Africa for my 40th birthday. Roman was five. I want to say we went like a year or two before that. Yeah, I think you did. Because I remember packing up all of his little shoes in duffel bags to bring to the villages. I mean, I trusted you because I had seen the work that Ashley had been doing. I knew that 
PSI was a legitimate organization that did amazing work. And, you know, when you looked me in the eye and said, we're going to save the world, (laughs) I was like, I believe you. (laughs) I think I said, actually, we're going to stop AIDS, which at the time was the only thing I was focused on. And, you know, fast forward to today, Deborah, we're going to get into this, but some of those funds that we raised through the Aldo campaign, you know, went to significant innovations to end the spread of HIV in our lifetime. And it sounds a bit dramatic. We're going to stop AIDS. We're going to end AIDS. But there's no reason why we can't end HIV AIDS in our lifetime. There is no reason. And actually, you saw the work that we were doing from using those funds from the ALDO campaign when we were in Zimbabwe, because you witnessed one of the first voluntary male circumcision programs, which is one of the tools that we now have that will greatly reduce the spread and people contracting HIV. So tell us a little bit about some of the things that you saw and some of the experiences that you had when you were with us in Zimbabwe. Well, I will never forget seeing the first circumcision, the voluntary circumcision. I remember being struck by how many people were in the room from our delegation. And I just remember there were about five or six men whose bodies were stuck to the back wall and they just could not watch. And I just thought, come on, guys. (laughs) And before it started, I I remember the doctor and the nurse taking us into this tiny, tiny, tiny little area just to show us the materials that they were using in order to do it. And at the time, they were saying that it cost a total of $6 to do the procedure and do three follow-up appointments. And I remember thinking, that's extraordinary. And then we went in and and I met the gentleman and he was 32 years old and he was a pharmacist. And I remember asking, why are you doing this? And he said, it's to protect my village and it's to protect my family. And I just thought that was so beautiful and powerful because to be the first, especially when the culture, it's not part of the culture anyway, it was meaningful. Well, I think what was interesting is he was in a marriage. He was a father and we did interrogate him. I seem to remember him lying on the bed with a green sheet over him with a little hole with his rather large penis hanging out. (laughs) I remember details, Deborah. I remember details. (laughs) And I mean, who finds themselves in these types of situations? We do. I certainly didn't expect that. No. But like we jest a little bit, but this is a life-saving intervention. And what has happened since then, that was the very first male circumcision in Zimbabwe. There was obviously the first clinic that we set up was in Zambia. And it was very difficult to get men. I think his name was Jonathan, our guy. It was very difficult to get men to come in to get circumcised, obviously. And we used various techniques. And the one that really worked was, you're going to be a bigger and a better lover. That was the intervention that actually got men in because you're using fear and death and 
interventions like that does not work in these types of innovations. But the fact that he was there and he was a married man, he's obviously has several girlfriends, which is why he wanted to protect his family. But then what happened? And this this moment will stay with me forever. <laughs> then I got very close to him and I could see he was nervous. And I took his hand and they were going to put a shot of Novocaine. And the doctor said, this is the only thing that's going to hurt. And I just said to him, look at me, just look at me. And I saw it start to take effect on him. And, and I just started singing, you are my sunshine. Mm-hmm. And I sang it to him throughout the entire procedure. I watched it happening and I kept looking down at him and his eyes were just stuck on me. And I just remember thinking I sang this song to my little boy when he was a little boy and it just came out. It just happened. And, you know, we joke about it, but it really means a lot to me that I was able to give him a little comfort in that moment. Mm, And you did. Meanwhile, I was almost passing out on the floor and you were singing, you are my sunshine. I mean, you're such a trooper. (laughs) So we did quite a few things on that trip. And again, you were amazing. The way you listened, the way you did what we asked you to do to have the impact. And, you know, to paint the picture of how these trips go, you know, we're there for about a week, 10 days, and we go to visit programs. We try to use your notoriety. I don't think I said that right. Notoriety. There you go. I don't think I can actually make that word happen in my mouth. So thank you for that. To make a difference. And for those who are listening, how this world works is there are huge pots of money that funders like the US government, the British government, that's the global fund. There's a lot of money out there, well, at least there used to be, to fund these interventions. And money is really important. <laughs> it really is because it does fund these programs that we can then prove and then scale. And What we do is we go, we look at the testing centers, we go and sit with people, they tell us their stories. We saw these incredible hairdressers, if you remember. Yep. As they were braiding hair, they were talking, we had trained them up to be condom promoters. Female condoms. Female condoms, which were very popular, especially amongst sex workers, and Mm -hmm. we needed to understand that program. But then the meetings, right? We would then put on a fancy dress and we would go and sit with a donor or a mission. How was that for you? Because that's way out of your comfort zone, right? Yeah. I mean, what I want to share with your listeners is I don't want you to get the impression that I just went on this thing and listened to what everyone said and I was great because that was not the case. There was a huge, huge learning arc. And I spent a lot of that trip being very scared that I was going to mess things up because all I wanted to do was to support the effort and not to get in the way of it. And there were many speeches that had to be made. And as long as they're written for me, I'm fine. But what I wasn't prepared for was the Q&As, like just the random questions in public about the programs. And I felt woefully underprepared. And I remember you and Marshall saying, you're not unprepared. Just talk about what you are seeing. 
And that's what's important is, is to tell the story and to share the experiences of people. But at the time, I didn't believe it. I just kept thinking, I am going to ruin this. So there was a lot of anxiety. But I remember we were sitting in a government office and, and the, there's a picture of Mugabe right on the wall. Mm-hmm. And we both just looked and I just was thinking, you know what? I'm fine. I'm with Kate. She knows what to say. I will just be here and be, you know, a source of support for her and for the mission. So that that really felt more comfortable than, say, when we went to the um, sex workers village. I think that was the most difficult mm-hmm. thing for me because I remember I brought the duffel bag full of my son's clothes and it was all of these sex workers with their their little children and they all lived in this community together and they watched out for each other and each other's children when they would go to work. And I thought it was extraordinary. And there was this woman, she was called the queen and she was the head of the whole village Mm -hmm. and she was amazing. And she sat us down and had different women tell us their stories about how they came to become sex workers and, you know, the dangers that they had encountered doing the work and trying to protect themselves with condoms and being beaten because nobody wanted to use them. And then we got a tour. We got a tour of the village. And I remember her taking my hand and taking me into her room. And there were three pictures. And they were pictures of, I soon found out, her son's. And she pointed to me, because she didn't speak English, she pointed to me and pointed to her boys. And I just said, yes, I have one. And I put, uh, you know, I just said, I have one son. And then she said, basically, she said, no, 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 take them. And she gave the three pictures to me. And she was like, take them, you take them. And she was asking me to take her children. Yeah. And I remember saying I couldn't and then turning around and walking out Mm. and walking into this space that had two walls and a rock, you know, for weightlifting so that they could protect themselves. And I just started to sob. Yeah. And I remember Marshall coming up to me and him saying, you got to get it together. Yeah. You cannot do this. You cannot do this. You cannot cry in front of them. You cannot do this. And so I needed a minute and then I got it together. But I think that was the hardest moment of that first trip. And even just knowing, like, I didn't know that crying was something that would be a bad thing to do, you know? The same thing has happened to me. I mean, sometimes you just, you never can possibly process just how poor and desperate some people are. You just don't know until you go and find yourself in that. And it's, of course, a complete normal human reaction that we would feel sad. And But showing that in front of the people that we are really trying to help is, as Marshall said, you know, we can't. And I've done it. I, I've been there. But I do remember that day very, very clearly, like it was yesterday, actually. And I remember bringing those clothes and we both brought a suitcase of clothes. And actually, what the ladies were telling us was they want to get out of this work. They would much rather 
sell these clothes and start a business. And, you know, we've now just seen that. We're going to talk about Rwanda in part two, but we've now seen that this world that we work in, where at the time we were very, very focused and still are on ending HIV AIDS, but it's an ecosystem of poverty, right? That's what's driving a lot of these issues is extreme poverty. And, you know, women working in in sex work don't want to be working in sex work. You know, they would much rather have a different income stream. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But the other things that you did, and again, using your platform, using your fame, like nobody wants to meet with Kate Roberts, right? Everybody wants to meet with Deborah Messing. And we were really able to use that opportunity of you being in Zimbabwe to also help unlock a fund uh, with the US government, which we did $100 million for Zimbabwe. You know, we got that to the end process, thanks to you and the great work of PSI, obviously. And, you know, we did a number of things, I seem to recall. We also went to a community center for LGBTQ plus members and heard how, well, why don't you tell the story? They were in hiding, weren't they? Was that that, that trip? Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. And I just remember being told, okay, they're in danger for their lives because they're gay and some of them are HIV positive. And so we are going to go somewhere that is a secret. And I just remember being very nervous, you know, feeling like we potentially were putting them in danger by showing up. And we ended up showing up. And of course, everyone was just so lovely and welcoming. And I remember us sitting outside in a, in a semicircle and people telling their stories And I remember us meeting one woman who was such a firecracker Mm -hmm. and she, the way she talked about changing the landscape for herself and for her community just was so unbelievably inspiring. I remember you looking to me and being like, she needs to come and talk in DC. And she'd never been on a plane, but she was like, she is a leader. She's a voice. You know, we, we did a lot of laughing because they recognized me from my my show. But inevitably at these meetings, we get to the details of just how hard it is for people to live their authentic life. And there are some pretty shocking stories of cruelty and physical violence that I don't think we hear about in our country. Things are, can be very, very extreme over there. And um, I just remember us walking out and looking at you and saying, we've got to help them. Yeah. We've got to change this. Mm -hmm. They can't live in secret. This can't be. Of course, I I had no idea how to help, but I knew that I was with the right people. And I was like, they'll figure it out. (laughs) Actually, I do remember coming back and I really want to talk about this because there's one thing about us going to Africa, hearing the stories and then, you know, unlocking the funds and all of those things are absolutely great, right? Like we need to do more of that. And we just were in Rwanda. That's going to be part two, as I said. But, oh, I remember coming back after that trip and actually going down to Michael Kors and getting a small grant from him, which was fantastic, very much focused on LGBTQ. And 
I remember us also looking at each other saying community, community is where it's at, like a place for people to go to get the resources that they know they're protected and that they can be with their own community and how effective that was to be at that community led center. Mm -hmm. What would you tell people who are listening to this show? Like how effective is it? going to a country like Zimbabwe to learn? Would you recommend people going? Oh my God. If you have the opportunity to go and to witness for yourself, your imagination is not keen enough to be able to have the experience of what actually happens when you're on the ground and you're in villages and you're talking to people. The kind of extreme poverty you know, we know about it intellectually. We read about it in the newspapers, but until you are there and you come face to face with it and you realize, oh my goodness, in this moment right now, my son is in a school where he's eating a lunch and he's learning how to write and he's learning math and he's clothed and I'm sitting here and this is all happening at the exact same moment. And I feel like an explosion goes off in my mind every time I experience it because it's so easy to just think about the world you live in. And, you know, as difficult as things are in our country and people are suffering, there's no comparison. There just is no comparison. Do you think, Deborah, that people care about what's happening in Africa? No. No. I didn't want to say that, but yeah, I think it's the truth. You know, I think as long, you know, I've read this a lot, a lot of comments that when I post about going on these trips, you know, I, I get a lot of comments from some people saying there are people starving in this country. Yeah. There are people who don't have school in this country, who are homeless in this country. How dare you go over and use your platform and try and raise money for people in a completely different country. And you're not doing that for your own, which I totally understand. Yes. First of all, what I would say to the people who make those comments is, Deborah, you now sit on the board of the Body Agency Collective. And the most recent trip that we did to Rwanda was to really look at our programs and to understand where the gaps are. And we do work all over the world. We also work in New York City. We look at what's happening domestically here in America. And indeed, you are right. These issues that we're working on, you know, we have extreme poverty in America we have a lot of issues going on right now that we know of that are politically driven, that religion gets in the way of us reaching certain groups that are at risk. We have a massive healthcare gap here in America because of, you know, the right who are blocking access to programs and healthcare that, you know, LGBTQ groups need, that women need around abortion and people telling us what we can do with our bodies. So for all of you who write those posts on Deborah's DM, you have to know that we are working in America. However, what I will say is 
a lot of groups that are going over to Africa and polarizing certain groups. It is U.S. driven. And we saw that recently on our trip to Rwanda, where we were just horrified, which we'll talk about. But to end this actual segment of the podcast, Deborah, do you think that we as a country here in America can learn from what is happening in Africa? And do you see any similarities? We definitely can learn. I feel like everyone is part of humanity and everyone has different experiences. So as long as that's the truth, we are capable if we're open and we're willing to listen to learn from each other. Mm -hmm. I think part of the reason why going to Africa feels so just cut and dry for me is often it's like, okay, we need to prevent this. We need to prevent this. What will work? And it's like, okay, this is an intervention that will work. Let's try it out. And then all of a sudden we have the data that it's saving hundreds of thousands of lives. It feels like, oh, okay, A plus B equals C. And for some reason in our country, it never feels that way. And I think it's because of all the politics. I don't understand why it has to be that way. It seems like healthcare is a human right and we are responsible for each other. We're each other's keepers. And, you know, having anybody say, no, they should not have any access. None of that makes sense to me. And it makes me crazy. Just because of your sexual orientation that you are victimized. And let's be honest, this this doesn't just happen in Africa. This happens no. all over the world. I mean, things are things are worse now in America than they've been in decades. Yep. We've taken a step back for sure. Since Zimbabwe, you've been to Malawi, you've been to Zambia, you've been to a a couple of places and you continue to do work here in America. And you've also been very vocal about your own religion, about being Jewish. And we're going to, again, talk about all of this in part two. But to finish this particular show, what is the one thing that from your travels over the last 15 years and the work, the activism that you've done, what's the one thing that really sticks in your mind of what you've learned, what you want people to know? I think it's two part. I think firstly, help the helpers. Mm. I think that, you know, a lot of us want to help and we, we see people like you, Kate, you know, who have been doing this your entire life. And we're like, you know, I'd love to do that, but I don't have the education for it. I don't have the experience for it. Oh, I could never be of any help. You know, it just seems so out of reach. And I feel like, you know, you don't have to be the person to solve the problem. All you have to do is to find people and an organization that is dealing with an issue that is really close to your heart and just say, can I help? Mm and literally just do what they say and listen. Mm-hmm. I think you learn so much from just being with the people who are doing this all the time. And the other thing is the power of storytelling. I think as often as we can, I think we need to ask people what their story is. Yeah. Whether you're in Africa or whether you're in America yeah. or... Yeah. Yeah. And with the arrival 
of social media as well. I mean, we are bombarded, bombarded with messages. And I think it leaves people very confused as to what to do. And that's not the stories that I'm talking about. You know, we, I mean, social media, we put out the story that we want people to think, Mm -hmm. but to be able to connect with a person and for them to be vulnerable enough to tell you the truth and for you to be open and willing to hear it. We never know what is going on in people's lives, ever, ever. You walk down the street and you might see some businessman who has, you know, a nice briefcase and he seems to be fine and, and you make all these assumptions. It may be the case that he is suffering in multiple ways that, you know, none of us could imagine. And so I just think it's it's a matter of seeing, looking for the humanity in everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and really getting educated. And for all of those who are listening, please do go through to tbacollective.org. And if you feel inclined, donate a dignity kit. Deborah, thanks so much for being on the show. I'm excited for part two. I love you. I love you more. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Sex, Body, and Soul. Remember, you can find all my favorite products and resources to support your health and sexual wellness through my one-stop shop, The Body Agency. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating and review on your favorite podcast listening platform. We are actually partnering up with Vital Voices to get much-needed dignity kits to the refugees in Ukraine. Girls and women do not have access to personal hygiene products that keep them safe and healthy. Please go to thebodyagency.com to donate a dignity kit today. Be sure also to sign up for our email list at The Body Agency for the latest curated recommendations from our industry experts and use our special promotional code podcast10 to get a 10% discount. Thank you for listening.